podcast. You are listening to The Profile Interview in association with Premier Christianity magazine. You can get yourself a free copy of the magazine by heading to the website premierchristianity.com slash free copy. I'm Ruth Jackson, editor of Premier Youth and Children's Work, and I've been speaking to Ben Lindsay, the CEO and founder of Power the Fight, which is a charity empowering communities to end youth violence. He's also author of a new book called We Need to Talk About Race. I guess the first question to ask would be to go right back to the beginning and talk about what was your experience of God as a child? Yeah, it's a great question. My experience of God as a child was a very good one. I grew up in a Christian home, went to a church called Willage Central Baptist in South East London. Uh, I had to go to church every week. My mum demanded it and uh, <laughs> went to Boys Brigade, lots of friends. And yeah, it was a great experience. I suppose when I hit 16, um, I kind of found myself getting involved in other things, nothing particularly bad, but just uh, understanding there's a world outside of church and uh, music and girls and stuff like that. And I suppose at 16, that's when I started drifting away a little bit. I mean, I went to uni and really drifted away <laughs> and um, kind of came out of university and knew I needed to get back on track with God Um I suppose I came out of union, I expected there was going to be a job for me. There wasn't. Um, my nan passed away, who was like the matriarch of my family. And that kind of hit me in a way which I didn't expect. The first person who really died uh, around me. And then, um, yeah, I just found myself getting more and more depressed. I can say it was dep- I, I wouldn't have analysed it as depression then. got depressed. And then I came to a point where I just was like, I need, I need answers and some stuff. And then I was uh, in a bar one time, uh, January 2000, and I met a girl who's my now wife. And she asked the question, it's probably the best best chat up line ever. She was just like, uh, do you believe in God? Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, this is where we're going. Straight in Straight in, yeah. (laughs) Do you believe in God? And um, I was like, well, yeah, I'm a black man from South East London. (laughs) And then um, she said, well, I don't know what I believe, but I'm being drawn to church. And after that, we just became friends and we started exploring just spirituality. And then one day she said to me, there's this thing called the Alpha Course um, in our local church in, in Catford. Uh, we should go. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure what type of church is it? And you did a bit of research and I was like, this is all a bit happy clappy for me. I'm not <laughs> sure about that. She's like, I really want to go. I'm going to go. So being from South East London, we always have backup everywhere we go. So I took one of my friends with me. I said, come on, let's go. Let's see what's going on. And it was incredible. Like Alpha, um, seven weeks or seven or eight weeks, opportunity to ask any question you want. You get fed, great atmosphere. And after those seven or eight weeks, I knew. I was like, okay, all the teaching I had growing up um, just all made sense. I, I was like, okay, Jesus can be my personal Lord and Saviour. Uh, and at that moment, something just changed in me completely where I was living very selfishly. And then I just looked at this incredible example of how to engage with people and life in Jesus. And I said, I want some of that. And then we both became Christians on the Alpha Course. We both got baptized on the same oh. day, May the 21st, 2001. And then we were married in 2003. And here we are. Wow. So you both went on that journey at the same time, even though you yeah. come from really different backgrounds. Yeah. So yeah, my wife, um, she did not grow up in a Christian home. So I'm obviously I'm black and my wife is white, but we shared the same culture. You know, we grew up in inner city, South East London. So that was the connection. But yeah, in terms of our journeys on spirituality, it was completely different, but we all came to the same point and here we are. And I'm sure this is really hard to hone down, but is there any day in your ministry so far that you can say has been like the highlight of your ministry? Wow. The highlight of my ministry. Um, I think it's always amazing when you see people saved. So when you see a journey. Um, so I've been really fortunate that I've seen two of my good friends come to Christ. People who I've known for like 10 years and you've gone in this journey. You've you've built a relationship, you've you've invited them into your home, you've hung out, they've hung out with your family, you've done barbecues, and you're praying, you're praying all away, and you're like, oh Lord, do something. And then you launch a church, they come to your church, mm. and they get saved. Nothing will beat that. 
Um, one of my friends was saved at a, a Christian event called New Day, which I'm part of the team for. I, I, it was an incredible moment. Another friend of mine who I used to work with, um, we just continued to just have this conversation about Christ. And then one day she came to a Christmas service, did Alpha and became a Christian. So I think when you see people saved and added to the kingdom, I, I, there's no better feeling. And obviously the knowledge of knowing that their eternal destiny is secure. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And just on that, New Day is New Frontiers youth event. Yeah, so New Day has been going for 14 years. It's a New Frontiers youth event. On average, we get around seven to 8,000 children. Um, it's an incredible event. It's you know, if you want to call it anything, it's like a Christian Bible camp, but it's much <laughs> more than that. It's it's you know, you have different seminars. Um, we've got very diverse speakers, great worship, brilliant teaching. And when we first started New Day, because New Frontiers, I suppose, typically was a very white middle class movement of churches, and as time went on that just changed so suddenly we found ourselves in a situation how do we deal and connect in with a different diverse young people coming through from inner city so that was something over the last 10 years I've been kind of involved in helping we created this thing called a rhythm factory um, which brilliantly we've We've got people like Governor B who's, who's, who was engaged with that. And we just needed to create something which, at first, the Rhythm Factory was very, let's do dance workshops and music workshops and uh, try and engage with urban culture. I hate the term urban, but that is what <laughs> we were trying to do. But then it evolved very quickly into, I think we can do more. I think we can do seminars which really engage with inner city young people's issues. So then we're now talking, and this is not to say all young people from the inner cities are engaging with youth finance or anything like that, but we were beginning to talk about what what does the Bible actually say about some of the things you're going through, such as youth finance and knife crime and substance misuse. And we just found ourselves in this space where hundreds of kids were coming to the Riven Factory. They got a great seminar during the day and then they were able to party in the evening. It's actually, it's probably good therapy, isn't it? Yeah get the teaching and then let it all out in the evening so it's good and yeah and that's still going so we're in our 10th year with Ribbon Factory at New Day and it's been brilliant we'll come back to youth violence in a minute mm. but if seeing people come to faith is the absolute highlight of ministry what have been some of the challenges yeah that's a, <laughs> that's a great question I think um, so I launched uh, Emmanuel Church New Cross which is part of Emmanuel Church London we've got two sites one in Greenwich and I launched New Cross 2016 and that that was tough I think you you carry something you carry this burden to see uh, this small area of the world transformed uh, to know Jesus and then all the practical stuff starts happening serving teams and rotors and fatigue and venues all the stuff which any pastor or church planter will tell you needs to happen but can actually be quite tiring and you're trying to pray for morale and, and stuff and you know you're you're like Lord we you know we really want to see new people come through the door and we want to see people saved and even though I've just said the high parts are I'm seeing people save sometimes you don't see yeah. people saved as quickly as you want. So it definitely has been a challenge. Um I think spiritually it can be very draining. I think any pastor will tell you it's um yeah, you can just get caught up in the operational and practical side of stuff. And, and I think at times your spiritual life can suffer. So fortunately, we've got a really good eldership team and we've got some really great people around me and the other leaders. But yeah, there's been some, if I'm honest, there's some dark moments when you're leading a church. And I think that's when the enemy can attack you as leaders. And therefore you have to cover your blind spots and and really continue to pray and ask God just to lead you through but there's there's been brilliant times but yeah I'd say that's probably some of the darker moments and how do you prioritise your own quiet time whatever you want to call yeah. it your own prayer life you know worship <laughs> with God when when you're constantly kind of telling everyone else to do that how do you make sure that you're prioritising that for yourself yeah I think that's a great question you never want to be the hypocrite you don't want to be standing up saying hopefully you know make sure you, you're praying and make sure you're reading your Bible and make sure you're going to connect group and then you don't do it yourself so and I think it, Actually, it's a great question because sometimes it can be tricky. Um, you are, as a pastor, as a leader, you're engaging with people all the time. 
So actually to get some space of just peace and quiet, you really got to fight for. And I've got three children, so that makes it even more tricky. But I try and prioritise this stuff in the mornings. I think that for me, I work best, I pray best, I study best when I've got a bit of space in the morning. So it might require me waking up a little bit earlier than I would like to, but it's, it's necessary. Um, we've got uh, what we call kind of like, uh, just kind of groups, smaller groups of people coming together so two or three where we can just actually get a little bit more intimate. So instead of like the small group or connect group model where you may have like 10 or 12 people, we try and make it like into twos and threes. And I've got a great group of people who I can be like, okay, let's meet on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, you have to work it out. And some people might be, it's better for me in the evening. I'm not really this person, but some people like going for walks in the park and the country and all this type of stuff. I'm not that guy, but it's, you got to work it out for yourself. But, so important to do and you've been working with at-risk young people for is it 17 years um it's coming up to 20 years i'm, getting, I'm, to I'm, 20 getting, years. I'm getting older um wow. how did how did that happen how did you start doing yeah that? that's um so going back to when i became a christian so this was 2001 i was working in a city before um that and um when i became a christian something opened my eyes just opened to a lot of the pain and suffering and issues young people have to deal with so what that meant was when I was working in the city, after work, I would then get my turntables because I DJ'd a lot. Uh, some other like-minded new Christians, very excitable. We just went to different youth clubs around London and just offered our services and just said, look, we can teach kids to DJ. We can teach kids about music uh, programs, how to make music, all this type of stuff. And we did that. And then... I realised I'll be pretty good at this. So then I felt I needed to try and get into this full time. So the first job I had in 2004 was as a learning mentor in a primary school. And I was there for a few years. And that was brilliant. I, you know, engaging with young people. But also I found myself, this is probably a precursor to becoming a pastor. I found myself counselling and pastoring not just children, but parents and teachers. After that, I became um, an education officer for the Lewisham Youth Offending Service, which was brilliant. And then I became an early intervention manager there. Then I went on to another community safety team. And so over the years, I was suddenly engaging with local, central government, um, city hall, all these agencies, but also engaging with lots of young people and families. And over the space of like 10 years, that's where we found ourselves. Do you think there are any reasons, or it might be that it's different for every child, but do you think there's particular reasons why young people feel they need to carry a knife i think um what i would say is that there is a dominant youth culture now so once upon a time we may well have fooled ourselves into thinking it's black lads from the estates or it's working class kids who are carrying knives um there's uh, terms like adverse childhood experiences which talks about the different uh, potential reasons why people or young people can end up in criminality you know we're talking about uh, separation of parents substance misuse uh, whether a parent may well have been in prison domestic violence um, mental health issues all these types of stuff and while I have seen over the years those issues being some of the reasons which can impact young people into criminality I'm also now dealing with young people whose parents are on six-figure salaries who um, are in the top set of their school and are still being arrested for carrying a knife. So we we can't just box this to say it's a particular type of kid. I think what we're seeing is that there is a dominant culture now which is playing out in our schools. And I always use the example, when I was a kid, unfortunately I was never the type of kid who got myself in too much trouble, but if there was ever an opportunity where I thought this may well get a bit hairy, am I going to get into a, a fight? I never thought at one point this could be the day I'm going to get stabbed. This is the day where I'm going to die. This might be the day I'll get a punch in the rib, but knives, that wasn't something which was in my environment. I'm not saying it wasn't around, but it just wasn't as, as dominant. Whereas these young people now, in today's uh, day and age, they have got this constant fear of, is this the day where I might, A, have to pick up a knife 
or that person who wants is approaching me is carrying a knife. There's kind of like this dominant culture. This is now, and it's impacting young people's mental health. Um, there's trauma, and I think it's a collective trauma actually. And I think it then it manifests and grows and grows, and then you've got this moral panic. So it's a really difficult question. I think we have to go deeper. We have to go beyond the headlines. It's not just a, about the young people as much as everybody has to make a choice. There's some external things which have not helped, such as austerity. So 1.6 billion has come off the government and local authorities between 2010 and 11 and 2016. And the first, uh, I suppose, uh, department which was impacted was youth services. So there's no youth clubs, detached workers have gone, we've got this problem. Now that's gonna trickle down and impact young people. It's not just all about young people making the right choices, it's also us as adults and those in authority knowing that some of the key services have been ripped away. So yeah, there are, there are there's a couple of, of many reasons why we're in this situation. And you talked about services and teachers and, and lots of different people. Mm. Who do you think is the best person to try and help tackle youth violence? Is it all of those people? Is it the government? Yeah, I, I always say that it's not just one part of society's responsibility. It's a societal problem. So we have to have a forum and a place where young people's voices are heard, parents' voices are heard, the police are in the mix, uh, local and central government are in the mix, faith groups are having conversations, arts organisations are having conversations. Um, it's what you will hear in the press as a kind of public health response, treating youth violence as a disease instead of a kind of law enforcement issue. Um, and in a, in a nutshell, it's a holistic approach bringing different agencies together. I think that's the only way we're really going to be able to try and tackle this issue. In the past, what it's been, it's like, well, we need more stop and search, which I do not agree with. Um, what we do need is more police visibility. But we also have to be aware that 50,000 police officers have come off the force. So there's a problem there. And that does come back down to austerity. Um, there's so many different angles. But yeah, I... yeah. And what role do you think Christians specifically have to play in all of this? I think Christians can play a massive role. We're called to be hope dealers. We're called to be people who look to Jesus Christ, um, who can do beyond anything we can think of. More practically, we have to look at what the church is capable of doing. And historically, historically the church has been responsible for some of the best um, charities, uh, organisations to impact poverty and fight injustice the church have got three things they've got volunteers um, they've got buildings and they've got resources and if we can train the church if we can equip the church to really look at where these these three things those volunteers buildings and resources can go we can make a massive impact the problem is that we need to appreciate but the type of young people and the issues we're dealing with have changed over the last 10, 15 years. So as a young person, I never knew uh, young people who would be engaged in youth violence to the extent that they're carrying semi-automatic weapons. It's a different ball game. So we have to get equipped. We need the wisdom of God. But we also can't be afraid to engage with other services who may not be Christian who can still teach us. So that's going to have to require us to, to step out of our comfort zone and say, you're not church, you're not Christian, but actually in this particular area of safeguarding, for example, we can learn. And how can that make our work better? And I think until we start learning to collaborate like that, the church, unfortunately, will always be a step behind everybody else where we should be really the frontliners and leaders of this and just from a practical perspective if we think that there is a child or a young person that we know who is potentially at risk of mm. either being a perpetrator or a victim what, what should we do about that yeah i mean I, again that's a that's a big question and i think it's not always that straightforward i think um the first thing you need to do is assess the situation and that may mean once you've assessed that do we need to talk to school do we need to talk to teachers do we need to talk to the police? Is there other other charities locally we can Google? So in my own organisation, when you go on our website, there's a whole list of resources split into very helpful categories where if you felt that there's a child who needs mentoring, you can go to a particular charity or organisation. If you feel a family may need therapeutic support and mental, there's, there's areas you can go to. So I think it depends on the child's needs. What... 
I would encourage people not to do is just panic and end up kind of maybe causing the situation more problematic. Hence the reason, again, with my own organisation, Power to Fight, we offer training and support uh, for people who do want to engage in this issue better than they are at the moment. Tell us about Power the Fight. Power the Fight, um, it's a charity with the tagline Empowering Communities to End Youth Violence. And Power the Fight kind of came out of a desire for me to look at how we can deal with this issue of youth violence, serious youth violence, knife crime, gang crime, from a community perspective. How can we empower uh, those on the ground, families, uh, schools, faith groups, churches, arts organisations? How can we return the power back to the community so they can be part of the solution? And the way we're looking at this is that there tends to be two ways of doing youth work or engagement with this issue. You've got the direct work, which is brilliant, where you've got mentors and you've got youth workers and all these different institutions. But in my experience, that is not always sustainable when you've got young people uh, and maybe two or three youth workers. It's not always sustainable. The youth workers get tired and fatigued. Um, what we don't see as much of is what I would call the indirect. How do you equip the institutions to be part of the solution? How do you equip the church? How do you equip the police? How do you equip the families? So what I'm trying to do is, is close the gap. We've got the direct work, which is necessary, but I think that's probably 80% of youth work. The 20% of trying to be able to advocate and create systems and really try and disrupt the issues which is going on from a little bit of a higher kind of point doesn't happen. So we're trying to combine the two and we're doing that, as I said, through training, through resources. You go on our website, we've got this thing called Power Talk, which is a bit like TED Talks. Um, we're interviewing some of the best practitioners across the country. This is free resources for you to learn about contextual safeguarding, trauma-informed care, getting a better understanding about the school to pupil referral unit to prison pipeline, all these different things that you will hear. We're trying to break it down into layman terms. Um, we are also trying to create a fund for families and young people impacted by this issue of youth violence. So we, or myself and my team have experienced when we work with young people and families in the direct aftermath of their young one being murdered, there's some uh, costs such as legal care. Nobody plans to pay for a funeral. Um, there's media intrusion. Um, as, I, as I said, the, the mental health, uh, either in the middle of what's going on or afterwards, these are expensive. It's not always easily accessible. We want to create a fund where we can kind of smash down some of the glass ceilings around this. And we've, we're connecting. The whole thing about Power to Fight is that it's not just one person. We are connecting the dots across the country, across London. We have access to some of the best practitioners in the country. So we're in a position to really signpost people to some of the best services which are out there. How how do we sort of walk through young people who have had a friend who's been stabbed and killed? Yeah, I mean, every case will be different. Um, I've had to do that many a time. I think um, you go through different phases of grief, um, anger, frustration, sadness. Um, and I think you the, the thing that we need to do is create the space for young people to be honest. And then we have to become better listeners. We can't be, the as adults, we can't be the people who think that we can just tell young people what to do. We need to listen. Um, I think we also need to be, we need to see um, the signs. We've got to work out uh, what's happening before it actually happens. And as a Christian yourself, you'd be familiar with uh, kind of love languages. And that's a classic kind of marriage tool, isn't it? Understand your partner's love languages. Um, I probably won't remember them all now. Touch. Um, words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. Presence. There you go, presence. Quality time. Acts of service as well. Yeah, and quality so, time. Yeah, yeah, quality time. So I think even that simple model, how well do you know your, your child? With my children, I know uh, one of them, it's really about spending time, quality time. Uh, uh, the other one is more like, let's eat <laughs> and, um, and either way you kind of work out what they are and I think if you can begin to kind of work out the young person you're working with and the children uh, your children 
I think that will help you long-term being able to engage and communicate because in the same way we can look at this as a positive, unfortunately there are some people who will flip that into a negative and be like, your love language is actually presence. So what I'm going to do to groom you is buy you lots of presents. And therefore, if you if you can be a bit clued up about uh, the personality and the characteristics of your, of your child, I think you're going to do well to be able to communicate with them long term. And obviously you spent a lot of time as a youth worker. You're now a pastor of a church. Yes. How do you champion young people from your position as pastor of the whole church? Our church in Greenwich have got more young people than our church in New, in New Cross. But it's amazing just to see the, the youth work we're beginning to do. And I think it's even allowing them to be part of the worship team. So we've got young people who are now drumming in our, in our, in our, in our worship. And sometimes that, that works well and other times <laughs> they're learning. But you're, you're, you're empowering them. You're giving them an opportunity to really engage on a, on a wider scale, not like in you've got this like youth thing over here, you just work here. No, we're, we're bringing them in. And I think you've also got to not separate it up too much. If we're doing Bible study, you're doing Bible study. If, if, if we're praying, you're praying, let's get you engaged on, on all levels. But at the same time, understanding that their needs are going to be very different and creating this atmosphere of listening. You have been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. You can get yourself a free copy of the magazine by heading to the website premierchristianity.com slash free copy. Stay tuned for the second half of my interview with Ben Lindsay. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. How do you think we reach the children and the young people outside of our churches? Because let's be honest, there's way more of those than there is inside our churches. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. I I believe a lot of this has to come down to the hearts of leaders. So I I sometimes hear situations where pastors were like, oh, I'm not sure about how we engage with young people outside of the church. And we've got to protect our kids who are in the church. And you kind of think, yeah, I kind of understand <laughs> what you're saying. But at the same time, we're called to go outside of our four walls of church and we're called to engage. And I remember at my church in Woolwich, we had Boys Brigade. And it, our church was in the middle of an estate, really, in, in South East London. And just the mix of young people which came in, it was brilliant. Um, but it does cause a headache because you've got unchurched kids with 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 church kids but even that we just got to also break down the barriers that unfortunately for me some of the young people who I've been working with over the years who have unfortunately either been perpetrators or victims started off in the church so we can't necessarily say we've got church kids and they're the holy ones and they're not engaging with this dominant negative youth culture no 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 when that door closes uh, your kids are listening to the same music your kids are watching the same stuff, they're just better at hiding it. And therefore we need we need to be aware of that. Um, you've just written a new book, We Need yeah. to Talk About Race. Yes. Tell us the premise of the book, why you wanted to write it. Yeah. So it's called We Need to Talk About Race, Understanding the Black Experience in White Majority Churches. Um, as I've said, and as you can see, I'm a black man. <laughs> and uh, my whole experience of church life is that I was brought up in a white majority church. I now lead a white, or one of the leaders of a white majority church. Um, New Frontiers is in, is a white majority movement. So in that time, um, I have been able to just see uh, some things which I've always had questions around. And unfortunately, the questions I have for the church is exactly the same questions I have outside of the church. So I'm asking the question of, well, why do we not see more representation in leadership of for, for ethnic minorities, black people in, in particular. It's a question I will have when I look at anything from management uh, positions in banking to football managers, and I'm asking the same question. Politicians. Politicians, anything you can think of in society. And the, and the thing about the church, I think in London, black people make up more of um, the congregation in, than any other, ethnic, any other uh, ethnicity yet we don't see that replicated in, in leadership. So there's, there's questions like that. And then the, the other question I've always had is, for some of my friends, some of my black friends, 
we've always, uh, who are not Christians, they, they will sometimes say to me, well, how can you be part of this institution of Christianity when we know that the church uh, was really involved in the transatlantic slave trade? So what would you say to someone who says that Christianity is a white person's religion? Yeah, all that. I'd say read my book. No, I wouldn't. I'd say, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that would be helpful, yeah, right? No, yeah, I mean, that is a, as one of those questions. It's a white man's... And, and we're like, well, it isn't. Because when you look at the, the history of the Bible... Um, and also some of the forefathers of faith, it came out of Africa. It came out of Egypt and Ethiopia. And you look at people, even though when you type in pictures of like Augustine, it comes out white. In, <laughs> and Jesus. And Jesus. And you're like, <laughs> this doesn't make sense because I'm pretty sure it was the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And definitely when it comes to someone like Augustine um, and various other uh, for, forefathers of our faith, it was all based in Africa. And therefore, what's happened? What has been, how's this been manipulated? So, so my challenge I sometimes get, especially in barbershops, because barbershops is where we always have these conversations, is like, well, it's a white man's religion. Gee, you know, it's translated slave trade. And I felt to myself, I need to get some answers. I need to be able to be equipped to talk. So, for example, let's take the translated slave trade. I get that a lot. And um, I've got Muslim friends who say, yeah, this is why I can never be a Christian. I'm like, okay, cool. But we know before the transatlantic slave trade in the ninth century, there was something called the Trans-Saharan slave trade, which was uh, run by Islam. So if we're going to say the reason why we're not doing Christianity is because of the transatlantic slave trade, we've also, then you've got to acknowledge that there may be a reason why we, you shouldn't do Islam. Got to be consistent. You've got to be consistent. So um, it's those type of questions and that type of level of depth I'm trying to get into so we can just have the conversation. I think um, there's lots of things I've kind of seen, lots of injustices, lots of questions I get from my white friends, my white Christians. How do we engage with black issues, especially over the last few years when we've seen the rise of Black Lives Matter movement and how we've uh, seen the injustices, the racial injustices across uh, America in particular, but also here. So we, we have to understand that we are in this position at the moment where the far right... Um, fascism, racism is becoming normalised. We see it in mainstream television, in mainstream media. And for me, that is a scary place to be. Um, I'm old enough to be able to remember the rise of the National Front in the 80s, the rise of the BNP in the 90s, the rise in the EDL in the last 10 years. And now because of Brexit, there's some pretty nasty things happening. My question is, where does the church stand in this? Is the church prepared to stand up and say, do you know what, actually... A lot of this stuff is is wrong. The annoying thing is that so many of these people who are who are talking about this stuff claim to be Christians. Mm. Well, I'm like, well, that doesn't even make sense when the Bible is very clear that we are to fight injustice and fight on the behalf of the oppressed and fight on the behalf of the immigrant and how Jesus went across culture. But that is not coming out. So this book really is to explain this is how me as a black person, and I'm not saying that every black person I'm not speaking on behalf of all black people, but I really wanted to create something which was a resource for white Christians to be able to say, oh, okay, I now I'm beginning to understand what it's like to be a black person in my congregation. I wanted to create a resource which went from just diversity, but real inclusion. Um, I wanted to challenge some stereotypes. I wanted to challenge some of the structures. Um, I think sometimes people look at racism as very much overt, if you say something racist, you're a racist. And I'm like, well, it's more than that. Um, actually, there is structures, there's hidden things, there's covert issues which have, have been there and are not being challenged. And this is more of a problem than even if you call me a, a, a racist name. But I'm praying, my prayer is that it, it, if I'm honest, it shakes the church in a positive way. And people look at this and say, the whole Bible was about Jesus coming to reconcile God, man to God. And he brought, he he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And uh, you look at Revelation 5 and 7 about uh, every tribe, every tongue. These are not just kind of ideals we hope to get to. We can actually begin to implement this philosophy into our church life. But if for that to happen... We're all going to have to have a bit of a look at ourselves and see where we're going. So I'm really excited about the book coming out. Um, it's two years of my life 
where it's been some incredibly dark moments. I've, I've, I'm talking about things which are very, very personal to me. I've, I put my own personal stories in there. I put some theory in there. There's lots of Bible in there. And I'm just encouraging people just to read it. But more than that, have the conversation. I'm giving you permission as a white person to have the conversation with your black congregation. I'm, give, I'm hopefully empowering black people to be like, ah, oh, finally, I can articulate some of my concerns and, and fears and hopefully create a church which is very diverse. And uh, do you think this, whether it's inherent or explicit racism Mm. and things like the transatlantic slave trade, do you think that's often a barrier for young black Presume, like a lot a lot of them seem to be young black men who seem yeah. to be really taking issue with this and what we're seeing in America yeah. is a huge drive of young black men converting to Islam yeah. for exactly this reason yeah. no I agree I think um, uh, it's so much about representation so if you don't see people who look like you if you don't see people who speak about the issues you're going through the conclusion you'll come to is that you don't really care about me so and I don't think that's just about ethnicity I think as a woman you may well have a similar position if you're if I don't see people in leadership or if I don't see people uh, talking about some of the issues I'm going through then how do I know you actually care about me and I think when we're talking about black people and the church and Christianity so much of it is a, is a whitewash of the people how we contextualize the gospel how uh, the type of people we're using as examples on a Sunday the things that we care about. So I am all for Alpha and I'm all for food banks and I'm all for debt management. But my, my challenge would be if you're about to plant a church in a hyper diverse, hyper racially diverse area, are those the things which are the most important thing to the community you're trying to reach? So I think the church is very good at social welfare uh, in the immediate need. Somebody is hungry, we we do a feed bank and you know Jesus did that 5,000 people or more in you know but I think what we're not that great at is social justice how do we uh, challenge the structures which are causing the social welfare issue in the first place rather than just patching up the holes exactly and I think the church has an incredible opportunity to really impact the social justice issues but before you do that you've got to get into the systemic issues within that community and not be afraid to challenge them and I think actually this is this is what goes back to power to fight we know in London at least that this youth violence issue is uh, predominantly taking the lives of black people that isn't the case across the whole of the UK but what I love to see is that there are white majority churches now who are saying this is an issue you know, we know that if one part of the body suffers, we all meant to suffer. Unfortunately, that hasn't always been the case. So these are some of the reasons why young black people are saying, I'm going to convert to something else. I'm going to look at um, African spiritualism. It's not just Islam, it's African spiritualism. It's uh, Hebrew Israelites. It's all these different uh, faiths which people are going towards. And it's so annoying for me because if we learn to contextualize the gospel better you will see that you will see yourself in Christ you will see yourself in the Bible but we are just created this whitewashing of what the Bible is and it plays out in everything that we do and it, and it breaks my heart because I know that's not Jesus I know that's not Christianity we can do a lot better and do you think there are specific ways that we can help children and young people to tackle these issues of racial injustice yeah again it comes down to listening I think we've got to not be afraid and I say we, um, what I'm really saying is that white majority culture should not be afraid to listen about stories of racial injustice without getting defensive. So if I'm talking about an incident of racism to a white person, to yourself, please don't think that therefore I think you're racist. (laughs) And I think that's what happens. It's like, oh, if we're talking about this, you must, no, I'm not. If I think you're racist, I'll tell you. That's not what it is. So I think we've got to create these safe spaces where if a young person or an older black person or person of colour says, I've gone through this or I felt my experience was this, let's have the conversation in a way where no one's going to be getting defensive. No one's going to say, oh, you've got a chip on your shoulder or you're playing a race card. If we see stuff, we shouldn't be afraid to have the conversation. That doesn't mean I'm saying you should go on a rant. But what I am saying is that we should be in a position where let's listen and here and to be fair even before that 
if there if we are seeing racial injustice if we are seeing a an atmosphere an environment of fascism or racism outside of the church we shouldn't be separate we should be able to say well maybe we need to talk about this on a sunday maybe we need to preach into this if we're seeing this type of stuff um, impacting the community outside of the church it's probably impacting the people in this church so as church leaders my plea is Let's keep your ear to the ground. And if you really want to create a racially diverse church, you're going to have to engage with the issues which impact your racially diverse congregation. Because if you don't, and I've seen this, you get what I suppose I'm calling black flight, where people were like, do you know what? Why I'm, I'm seeing racism in my job. Why do I need to be here on a Sunday? Let me go to an all black church. And I think that's a shame because I think... I've got nothing against black majority churches, but I also think that the Bible's clear that we are meant to come together um, under the banner of Christ from every different tribe and tongue. So, but for that to happen, we're gonna have to work harder. It's, it's like, you know, when you invite someone around for dinner for the first time, it's really awkward, it's a little bit, especially if you don't really know them. Mm. You don't just stop after one meal. You keep going, you keep going, and eventually you get to know each other. And how do you think, or do you think, in white majority churches, do you think we should be actively trying to make them more ethnically diverse? And if so, how do we do that? Um, actively make it ethnic, ethnically diverse. I think not necessarily. I think if, I can't think of an example, but there's places around like, uh, the UK where there's probably not many black people. So, you know, it's not like Amazon where you can ship them in kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, but I think if you are in a racially diverse town, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, um, London, and all and many other places, and you're in the middle of hyper diversity, hyper racial diversity, but your church is all white. Yeah. I would have a massive question. Mm. If you're in a hyper diverse environment and uh, you have black people in your church or F or any ethnicity in your church, but your whole leadership team is is white, again. My question is, where are the pathways for people of colour to to help be part of the leadership team, help create the culture? So much about this is fear. So much about this is, unfortunately, power as well. For this to happen, to level it, to, to get a seat around the table, white majority culture are going to have to relinquish some of the power and what, we, and what we're all used to to bring other people in the mix. Now, when people don't see that, they get frustrated. They're like, do you know what? Either we'll go and do our own thing or I'll find a space where I do feel valued and, and welcome. And, I, and again, it's heartbreaking. I was very fortunate when I was at King's Church London and where, where I got saved that I had an example of a black leader. And therefore, because I had that example, I didn't think there was anything I couldn't do. What I see with white majority culture is that we take this for granted because you've got white uh, uh, a representation of white people all around you. It doesn't just stop with the church. You see it in in television as well. It's kind of yeah. I get. For, I think Coronation Street recently. For, I think Coronation Street's been going for thirty five, forty years. Only in the next couple of months, you're going to see the first black family huh. in Coronation Street. Like we've never had black people in, in Manchester. It's, it's ridiculous. So on a mainstream level, we're not even used to seeing. And I always say this as well, black people are not a monolith. So what I mean by that is we got to get to the point that not everyone's going to speak or agree or even have the same background or experience as me. And that's totally fine. But we've got to be able to create a situation where people can have conversations and tell their experience. And there's going to be some stuff in this book uh, which people will find uncomfortable. Either they'll be like, did that really happen, Ben? Or is that really how it is? And I'm like, well, yeah, because this is actually, and I think when you talk, my, my, my thing I always say to people is, if you don't believe me, go and ask your best black friend and see whether there's any connection. Do you think there's any ways, if you are in one of those white majority churches, but you're in a really ethnically diverse yeah. area, clearly that is an issue. What are some of the ways that you can try and stop that being an issue? Yeah, I think you're, you're going to have to work hard. So you're going to have to do a bit of research. You know, you're going to have, and not just use black people's Google either, like go and do your own, you know, you, you can go and find out what is happening, what's going on locally. Um, you're going to have to maybe move from your favourite chair on a Sunday. 
and go and sit to somebody sits to, next to somebody you don't know, um, who is a different colour to you. Um, you see, there is a power dynamic, and therefore, unfortunately, some people might say, "But why do we have to make all the effort?" And I get what I totally understand what people are saying, but for black people walking into a into a church context, especially a white majority church, it's not an easy place to feel integrated and included. So somewhere along the line, and I'll use Jesus as an example, Jesus stepped off his throne, traveled the cosmos to reconcile us to God. That's an example. He didn't have to do that. He was being worshipped. I'm sure it was lovely in heaven to be to now come down and to be despised. If if our King Jesus can step off the throne to effectively connect, some of us are going to have to just move out of our, chi- our, <laughs> our chairs on on a Sunday to connect. We've got a great example of of what Jesus can do when 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 he when he did that, and we're we're the result of that. So I just I'm, it's a, it's an encouragement to say, come on, you can engage. You can you can look at you can support charities which are dealing with issues which predominantly impact ethnic minorities um, as I said there's a personal challenge who are your best friends who are your friends who do you hang out with most they all like you they all go to the same coffee shops as you do they all you know are they all they all dress like you they all like let's ask those real questions who's in your circle of friends I am fortunate that I have black and white and Asian friends and we're, we're, we're good and we all have preferences we all have unconscious bias as well this, this term which is out there we have our, we have biases we have all that but we've somehow got to break all that if we are going to step into uh, this Christian family because it, it otherwise we're just going to be split and I know God doesn't want that for us um, we're going to change tack now and talk Please. about parenting for, ah. for a bit if that's alright yeah. um, do you do you actively talk to your children about what it means to be mixed race? They're young, so at the moment, no, um, not you know they're uh, six, three, and four months. But it comes up in conversation, so um, we don't hide from it. And my children are very aware: dad's black, mum's white. Um, you're at best of both worlds. Um, you know, I think my son recently said. His, it, it, my wife overheard a conversation with him and his friend. His friend was white, and um, I don't know how they got into conversation of skin color, but my son was very much, yeah. So I'm kind of like a beige color, <laughs> and then his white friend was like, "Oh, am I beige as well?" And my son was like, "I'm not sure. I don't think so." <laughs> um, and they're just having this conversation, and at the moment, it, it, you know, he he likes his hair's like my hair. He loves that. There's no issue. But I know that's going to change in a sense. Either it will change because we're in this world where people like to categorise and box you. It will change because either maybe at some point um, there will be an identity question. Just, oh, okay, I'm black and white. Maybe more of my friends are white. Maybe more of my friends are black. Where do I sit, you know, in, in that? And I think we as parents just need to be really prepared when that comes and I think there's things you can do so like I said some of the stories that we're reading we are deliberate and intentional to make sure that there are people of colour and there he's seen a representation of they are seeing a representation of people of colour and therefore when that conversation comes it's not just going to be a bolt out of the blue it's like no no we're we're happy to talk about this stuff so I'm sure there'll be some interesting times but yeah we're, we're we're never afraid to have that conversation um I think it's really important. So, yeah. You've been parenting now for six years. Mm. If you could go back to your teenage self, yeah. is there any advice you'd give yourself? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think peer pressure around girls. You, you have to have a girlfriend or you have to have sex. I'd love to go back to my teenage self and just be like, you don't have to do anything, <laughs> <laughs> actually. And, you know... It's okay. You're doing you're you're doing all right. I think I would read more. In it's things I'm reading now, which I wish I'd I'd known. There's stuff around the Bible, um, but also just about race and stuff. I think the sense of pride I have in who I am now, I wish I had when I was a teenager. I think it would have 
it would have made a, a, a big difference. So. Do you think you would tell your 14 year old self anything about God? Like, is there anything that you would, from all the sort of spiritual journey that you've yeah. been through, is there any advice that you'd? Yeah, um, it, trust him. Trust, like, even if it looks like there's no way out of a situation. Um, I heard the Archbishop of Canterbury say recently um, that all suffering is temporary. And I think even something like that, I I wish I would have said that to my, my 14 year old self, just to say, do you know what, whatever you're going through. Um, and also the difference between suffering well and suffering badly, if it makes all the difference, you can, we can use a lot of, it can make excuses. I'm going through this situation, so that means I'm just gonna go off the rails, because you know, I can't. So like, no, I've seen some, I've got some really good friends who are going through some stuff, they have gone through some stuff. And I have to say, I've said to them in the past, you have suffered well, you know. You have still been faithful to your your your, your partner. You haven't turned to drugs or, or or excessive drinking. You've not done. And and to be honest, because of your situation, if you had done, I think many people would have been like, well, you know, look what they're going through. No, no, no. You focused and trusted on Jesus Christ, the Rock, our foundation, our steadfast love, regardless. And, and fortunately, I had my mum and my grandma to say that, whether it list I listened or not. <laughs> but I would come back. I think so important I'm realising the importance of black male uh, role models for for black men and uh, black girls actually um, I didn't I, f- I was fortunate I had three uncles who were great um, but to even have someone a, a, even five years older six years older to say walk with me uh, I, that would have been a complete game changer in my teenage years I think Ben, why are you doing that? And I guess what's amazing about youth workers now is they can be that for those young black yeah, guys. Yeah, but I still think there is, um, even those people need to be empowered. So what I'm realising is that there's, I'm in my early 40s now and it means uh, there seems to be a bit of a gap. I'm now being told I'm one of the fathers of the community at 41 years old. That's a, that's a big responsibility, but actually there's a bit of a gap. Now, there are some older people. There's people like um, the Reverend uh, Les Isaac, who is a really good friend and has become a, a bit of a mentor to me. Um, people like Owen Hilton. There's some great people out there, but there needs to be a lot more. <laughs> so when I'm like, who's in their 50s and 60s who the average person can turn to in a church context, there's not many. So... For me, I, I like to spend time. I spend time with younger guys, uh, younger women a lot and just encourage them, invite them around to my house, get them to, they know my family because I think this is a type of thing which really just normalises a lot of stuff and then allows conversation to occur. So I, I, I think it's really important. I love spending time with younger. Plus it keeps me relevant as mm. well, you know. Like, I, I still think I'm cool and then they tell me I'm not. I mean, you look pretty cool today. Yeah, I don't know. I think a 25-year-old might have something <laughs> to say about that. But it's good. It's good just to have a conversation. You have been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. You can get yourself a free copy of the magazine by heading to the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample.